You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm attending ACR 2021 Convergence, and it's been a spectacular opening. And I am so delighted to have with me today some of the key members of the Global Rheumatology Alliance. It's been very prolific in its research um, and been collecting patient data on COVID-19 that's been so instrumental in guiding us on how to manage our patients during the pandemic. So here we have Dr. Yazdani, Dr. Sparks, and Dr. Liu. Welcome to um, our program. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. So could you distill for us, um, to our viewers, what you have discovered in the last year? Now that a whole year has push forward compared to when we were about a year ago. And I'll just start with um, Dr. Sparks. Wow, um, it's incredible, obviously, what the, uh, the rapid pace that has transpired with COVID and certainly the GRA, I think, has been uh, ahead of the curve, you know, particularly in rheumatology. Um, so I think from the physician registry standpoint, which has been sort of the crown jewel of the GRA, um, I think it's been incredible as far as the number of cases, which obviously we wish we weren't in this position where the virus really got to this point where there were so many cases. Um, but it has really broadened the scope and trying to you know, really do very targeted analyses. Uh, so within the last year, certainly there was a major paper at the very beginning of the year related to both general factors and rheumatology specific factors and mortality. Um, among rheumatic patients, you know, which really found, you know, for our patients in particular, you know, high disease activity, glucocorticoids above a certain threshold, certain medications in particular, rituximab, perhaps sulfasalazine. Um, and then um, Zach Wallace and I, my compatriot, <laughs> I feel like I'm his spokesperson at some times. Uh, so we, we did one of the first studies looking within a single disease, rheumatoid arthritis, to try to really understand whether the medications impacted the disease course and really found a very striking association of rituximab use with poor outcomes, uh, a relatively novel association with JAK inhibitors. Uh, so those are some of the things that come to mind, but certainly I want uh, the other panelists to uh, chime in as well. Dr. Liu, what, what do you have to add? Um, yeah, just going off of that. So um, that was the RA specific study. And then we have a vasculitis specific study um, that, has been accepted um, that looks at um, a vasculized population, including PMR, and what kind of um, factors associate poor outcomes um, in that group. And then we also have a uh, lupus-specific study that is being presented at a this ACR um, and has been submitted for publication. And then we have some other studies all coming from the physician registry that are um, either in progress, um, currently being edited right now or submitted. Um, we just have so many um, more new things um, from this registry that we started um, just over a year and a half ago. Um, so, and also other things that are not specifically related to our registry um, that came out of collaborations um, from our GRA group. And um, I think Dr. Yazdani could speak more towards that, especially the um, the plenary that's going to happen um, given by Dr. Kim. Absolutely. Yes, Dr. Yazdani, please add on. Yeah, um, 
Well, I think one of the things that just has been amazing to watch over the last year is just how people have come together and collaborated on a scale that I, I certainly have never seen in my career, just rheumatologists all around the world contributing and, and also, you know, actually reaching across specialties to combine data. Um, that, that's been amazing. One of the papers that we worked on over this last year was actually combining data from the GRA with our inflammatory bowel disease colleagues and psoriasis colleagues who had a very similar registry. And you know, one of the things we wondered is whether some of the things that we were seeing in the, in the GRA would actually be similar to, to what they saw. And in fact, in all of the registry, people who are using TNF inhibitors were actually doing quite well compared to, you know, other reference agents, like for example, taking methotrexate or taking other combinations of medications. And it, it was really nice to be able to bring that reassurance back to the community that people using TNF inhibitors are, are doing really well. We've also been able to focus on health disparities. And I know that this has been on everybody's mind during the pandemic. Um, we are seeing health disparities, not just in the United States, but around the world. And unfortunately, one of our papers just highlighted how striking they are in rheumatology. And really that's just a call to action to all of our colleagues to go the extra mile to protect patients that are in vulnerable groups, whether it's through you know, counseling, increased vaccination efforts, um, or you know, other things that we can do to uh, prevent COVID-19. Also add about some of the other initiatives beyond the physician registry, which has been really important over the last year. Um, so I was privileged to team up with Julius Samard, as well as John Houseman, Emily Sarotash, uh, Jean, uh, as well as uh, Dr. Yazdani, um, Dr. Liu here. Um, so we also did a new survey related to the uh, uh, perceptions and um, experience of the COVID vaccine among people with rheumatic diseases. So again, that's probably something that we thought of around this time last year, and we didn't even know that the vaccines were going to be uh, efficacious at that point. Um, and then we started to develop the survey and, you know, rolled it out, I think in record time. And, um, you know, I think we translated it into almost 20 different languages. So to just see the amount of uh, effort that went in. Um, and we got a great response. We ended up giving over 11,000 responses from people with rheumatic diseases and you know, multiple papers are also coming out from that. Um, I think other things to highlight would be a trainee survey. Um, there's been trying to focus on the trainee experience for rheumatologists, uh, as well as systematic reviews. Um, a recent systematic review was really just accepted at ANR which I think is really gonna be the most comprehensive assessment for um, how um, COVID can affect rheumatology patients from a clinical perspective. So it's just really amazing how, um, how many people are involved and we're all moving forward and trying to really understand this from every angle. And I wanna add, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, no, sorry, go ahead, please. And I wanna add what Dr. Sparks has mentioned. Many of those things are, have either been presented um, at the annual meeting before or are going to be presented this year. For example, Kristen Young, um, who led the trainee survey or one of, was one of the leaders of the trainee survey, she'll be presenting an oral um, on um, uh, like wellness and perceptions of the trainee experience during the height of the first peak of the pandemic. Um, 
So that will be, I think, in one of the education sessions. Um, and then the massive literature review that was actually a year um, a year long project um, led by Evelyn Shea and uh, Max Koenig um, and Richard Conway that just uh, um, got accepted in ANR. That will be a poster that will be presented in one of the COVID um, sessions. So um, if you're interested, please um, look out for all of these things and um, give us a shout out, ask us questions and just, um, just see just the different things that we have um, looked into over the past year. Now, one of the things had been um, our patients are, are getting vaccinated, they're getting their booster. Has the GRA collected a lot of data on breakthrough cases after the booster? Jean, you have to take that one. I think <laughs> the late breaker presented by yeah. Dr. Liu here. So we have a late breaking um, abstract, it's L04. Um, so this is a poster that will be presented on the last day of posters. And um, it's, so your question is about breakthrough infections after the booster or third additional dose. And um, we don't have data on um, those such cases, but we do have data on breakthrough infections. So we looked at people who were fully vaccinated um, with a definition of 14 or more days out after the completion of the initial series. So like two doses of an mRNA vaccine or one of a Johnson & Johnson. Um, so these fully vaccinated people had 87 of those. And then we also had um, a little over um, 100 um, who were partially vaccinated. So um, in the time frame, essentially between the first uh, and the second dose. So we, it's a large case series that's from our registry. We um, made a call and asked people to enter these specific cases um, over, the, um, over the early part of this year up till um, September. And um, we really wanted to look at um, the people who are fully vaccinated and who got very sick and were hospitalized. So we have 22 of those. And um, I don't wanna give any spoilers, but <laughs> it really corroborates the data that we saw in laboratory-based studies where they were looking at surrogate um, markers for um, COVID-related outcomes and how people who are on B-cell depleting therapies like rituximab or antimetabolites like mycophenolate had lower humoral responses, lower antibody responses to the vaccines. Um, we're also seeing, unfortunately, um, patients on these therapies being frequently represented amongst the uh, hospitalized and fully vaccinated. So it really, um, really kind of um, reaffirms that message and also leads us to say like, what can we do in addition to vaccination since everyone should get vaccinated? Um, what can we do in addition to vaccination for these people who remain high risk for infection? So one of the things that I'm always kind of curious about is um, what is some of the data that's not actually published? Like that's not in the abstracts. Like, can you share with us some of the findings that you have that didn't quite make it into the abstracts for our viewers? Well, one, one really cool um, project that we're working on, actually I'll show two projects. So the first one is trying to develop a clinical risk calculator so that you know, we can actually use some of the things that are readily available to us, like age, demographics, comorbidities, you know, disease activity, and medications to actually try to predict um, important clinical outcomes. And this, in this paper that we're working on, we're trying to predict ARDS, which is obviously you know, the most severe and common uh, complication of, of COVID-19. And it was a very comprehensive project where we built a model using machine learning. Um, we sort of validated it on a subset of the data. And then we 
validated even further in some external registries from several countries from around the world. And the model actually performed pretty well. And it's a very simple to use um, risk calculator that really just affirms the risk factors that have been identified over you know, the last 20 months in people with rheumatic disease, things like age and comorbidities and prednisone dose, and B cell depleting therapy and disease activity. So hopefully that will be um, you know, accepted soon and, and out there for, for people to use. The other thing is that one of the things that we, you know, haven't looked at uh, previously, um, given our focus on sort of medications and clinical risk factors, is just what uh, uh, impact the environment and the region, you know, that people are from and sort of the COVID policies in the community, what impact that has on people with rheumatic disease who might be immunocompromised and their outcomes. It's a very provocative analysis done by one of our um, graduate students and really highlights that the disparities um, sometimes arise also from some of the community factors um, here in the United States, but also all around the world. So that's a preview of two things to come soon. Very exciting. What about you, Jeff? What are you working on? Uh, well, related to the vaccination survey, uh, we do have a paper published um, that looked at the clinical experience of the people who were vaccinated pretty early on. Um, so that was really the people at the very beginning of the survey getting vaccinated in April and May. Uh, if you remember back to that time of optimism. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we definitely kept the survey open for the rest of the summer. Um, so really the follow-up study is really trying to look at the entire perception around the COVID vaccine among rheumatic people. Um, and certainly just like the rest of society, there are some, some people who have reservations about getting the vaccination. People are uncertain. Some people who very clearly don't want to get it. So um, we do have a paper that uh, will be looking in more detail about sort of perceptions. And certainly there's a lot of rheumatology specific things that are important to patients, in particular disease flare, in particular where the disease state is, you know, the timing of their rituximab dose. So there's some things that are really, you know, things we struggle with in clinic. So I think getting a, a big, big picture perception of this is going to be important. Uh, the other thing we're thinking about, um, and Janus will hopefully you'll agree we can go move forward with this, is trying to understand um, the symptom and COVID disease course among people who develop COVID. I think we've mo we mostly focused on hard outcomes related to hospitalization and mortality, which are very important. But there are certainly a subsegment of, of patients that have very protracted uh, COVID disease courses with the long hauler symptoms that may last weeks and months. Uh, and we think that there might be something special among rheumatic patients that, that, uh, that deal with that because they already have a chronic disease on top of that. Uh, so we'd like to at least get some descriptive studies to understand uh, what is different about these people who end up having sort of, you know, very long duration of symptoms um, compared to those who have a pretty quick and mild course. Do we have any data on how many of our patients are long haulers? Oh, we're really early in this analysis. And I'd say we, we don't want to go too far down the route of like rates and proportions because this is a voluntary sort of survey and it's not a clear denominator. So uh, we're, we're trying to be very cautious in understanding some of the limitations of, of the GRA related to that. But I'm sure you've seen, just like in the general population, there's plenty of patients with rheumatic diseases who have a a really long course that uh, can be difficult. And another interesting thing related to rheumatic diseases is that particularly patients on, on rituximab might actually have a very 
protracted viremia compared to the general population, which might make this specific to rheumatology. Right, right. What about you, Jean? What are you working on now? So I am still working on the breakthrough. (laughs) I am working on everything. So I'm working on the breakthrough um, infections paper. We just submitted it and hoping to shepherd that through to publication. Um, And I'm actually what Jeff is just talking about is so hot. It's not even on the press because we are um, just in the very early stages of trying to figure out what, um, how we can address this question. So that's like the the thing that I've been working on. It's maybe too hot off the press. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we've been messaging about it on the Slack channel. Yes. Today, (laughs) a few hours ago during the meeting. So um, that's really what's next for us and, and for me. That is so exciting. I am so glad that y'all are working on this. And, you know, it, collaboration was one of the things that um, Janice was mentioning. And I don't know how y'all do it. I mean, collaborating from between different registries, different countries, um, just different areas of medicine. Um, what was the toughest thing that you have encountered when, when you were trying to collaborate with people? Is it just time zone or personalities? I would say that it's, it is the time zones. <laughs> it's hard to schedule a meeting. We have a very narrow window in which we can accommodate our colleagues in Australia and New Zealand and Europe and, you know, here on the West Coast. I mean, it's, it's definitely a challenge. And um, some people have been amazing. You know, Phil Robinson has to get up at a god awful you know, hour in the morning in order to, you know, be our fearless leader. So um, kudos to, to him and everybody that's that's been involved. You know, I have to say that um, there have not been personality or other kinds of issues that, that I'm aware of. It's an incredibly collaborative um, and energized group of people. And I think that the sense of mission is just so powerful and overwhelming. Maybe the pandemic really just sort of highlights that sense of sense of mission. And I think that has led everybody to, to collaborate and really to, to get along this, this whole time. I think we've been really lucky. I think actually the the biggest challenge because we have so many people and Janice always says we, it's a big tent, like everyone's welcome. It's when you have a project, you have so many people who are responding and um, giving you helpful comments on the manuscript. Um, it's just, it, it's so amazing how many people are just really involved. It's not when we, when we have these papers with so many authors, it's everyone's like provided a lot of input. They've provided their own cases. They've provided thought into what should go into the data presentation when we write the paper. Um, and we've been joking like um, Jeff and I, that it's, it's like the, the, the problem of entering so many people and all their affiliations because we've just got such a big team, but you know, I wouldn't want there to be fewer people involved and certainly wouldn't want to be more restrictive in, in who um, gets to work with us. I, I think anyone who has ideas and the time um, and the energy to, to help with our projects um, should be able to help. I would definitely second the loading the submissions and dealing with the <laughs> conflicts of interest. I think we've broken a few journal submission websites where they didn't couldn't handle that many authors in the past. So yeah, even the ACR will let you have fifty, and then you have to do something special. So it's it's been fun. Can't wait till we're all in one place celebrating. Hopefully next year's ACR. That's for sure. Yeah, probably with masks uh- and socially distanced. <laughs> Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate your time um, that you took with me for this interview and, you know, for informing our viewers what's going on. We are definitely going to continue to push forward 
and hopefully we'll see each other in person next year. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for RoomNow. Follow us on Twitter, watch us on RoomNow.com. Thank you. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate for RoomNow.com, updating you on ACR Convergence 2021 AXPA highlights. Much of our research connecting family history of AXPA to potential for HLA-B27 positivity comes out of studies done in Western Europe. So abstract 0368 by Dr. Van Luterton et al. aimed at understanding geographical prevalence of AXPA family history and any relationship to HLA-B27. They looked at reviewing charts of 2,000 patients from across the worldwide ASAS per SPA study. So of these 2,000 patients, we had four regions that were represented, Asia with 545 patients, Europe and North America with 840 patients, Latin America, 202 patients, and Middle East and Northern Africa with 461 patients. Patients had a median age of 40, they had an average disease duration of 11 years, and only 31% were females. Family history of AXPA tended to be the most common compared to psoriasis, uveitis, and reactive arthritis in all geographical regions, regardless of HLA-B27 carriership. So this is the interesting part. Interestingly, family history of psoriasis and IBD appeared to be more common in HLA-B27 negative patients. And family history of reactive arthritis remained rare across all geographies. So the regression model showed that family history of AXPA was associated with HLA-B27 HLA carriership in all geographical regions, with the exception of Middle East and Northern Africa, where HLA-B27 positivity was associated with a family history of psoriasis. In Europe, an HLA-B27 carriership was also associated with an inflammatory bowel disease family history. So this is a really interesting study that challenges kind of the way we talk about family history and regard um, to HLA-B27 positivity in our patients. I don't know that it's going to change the way that I treat patients, but I do think it opens us up for the opportunity to have these discussions, particularly in terms of HLA-B27 positivity and geographical family history. So for more ACR Convergence 2021, Follow us at roomnow.com. And of course, check me out on Twitter at UpToTate. Hi, this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh, the um, University of California, San Diego. And I'm here for Room Now and talking about the American College of Rheumatology meeting, of course, which kind of started today. Uh, they had some lectures today, and I know there's been other Room Now programs that have talked about some of the things that were covered, particularly the year in review. And I think there was also an introductory talk about COVID, a uh, hot topic, of course, for all of us in rheumatology, all of us in medicine this year. But a lot of excitement sort of going into the meeting, the meat of the meeting will be tomorrow. I think there's quite a number of themes that we're seeing. Uh, in rheumatoid arthritis, boy, there's been a lot about the safety. Everybody's very excited to see some actual data from the oral surveillance study, the 1133, the long-term study of tofacitinib at different doses initially compared to a TNF inhibitor. Now we've heard rumblings about this and there's been all sorts of uh, interest in this. In fact, it was covered by Dr. Karen Kostenbader in her year in review in rheumatology. 
And as she said, we, we just really need the data. So it's really very exciting that at this meeting, we do have presentations of the data. There are five abstracts related to the oral surveillance study, and they will provide data on the overall study, the MACE, the major adverse cardiac events, that was the co-primary endpoint, the malignancies, non, non uh, the uh, excluding the cutaneous malignancies, and also though very interesting data on uh, the clotting events, which we had heard something about, and some data on infectious events, which we really had not heard about uh, before. So we're going to look for these. I think that's going to be a, a real interesting hallmark of disease. And um, I think the most important thing I'm looking for is the individual risk factors. We know that to get into this study, which included 4,500 patients almost, that you had to have a risk factor for a cardiac event. Well, uh, we know that there was a difference in outcomes across the different exposure groups, the TNF inhibitor compared to the five milligram twice a day dose of tofacitinib compared to the 10 milligram daily dose of uh, twice a day dose of tofacitinib. But we don't know about the people who had those events, which were relatively small in number, but as I say, have gotten a lot of attention. But who are the people who had those events? We've seen so many other studies that have looked at this. They've looked through this databases for tofacitinib and for the other Jack inhibitors. We know that the FDA has had what some people would say has been a relatively cautious line, and that is that they've grouped these for all the Jack inhibitors, including ruxolitinib, which was not in the initial warning as it's used for oncology, but the topical form of ruxolitinib is now approved in atopic dermatitis, and it too shares the warning label with what we've seen for tofacitinib, for baricitinib, for upadacitinib. So it's going to be very important to get into these data, into the weeds of the data to really tease out who is going to be at the greatest risk. And that's the most important thing that we have to sort out as clinicians. But that's not all at the meeting. There's a lot of other things at the meeting. And I know for room now, there are a number of correspondents who are covering this. I think we'll cover the breadth of the different diseases to different therapies, and a little topic about COVID, about which there are really quite a number of interesting abstracts. So it's going to be an exciting meeting. I think we wish we were in person. We wish we could go up to the posters and ask the presenters about, well, what about this risk factor? What about that particular subgroup of the study that you're talking about? We're not able to do that as efficiently as we could if the meeting was as it would normally have been in person, but we try to do the best we can. So Room Now will really jump in and try to tease out all the relevant information that is available at ACR and present that to you as quickly as we can afterwards. So uh, stay tuned, keep watching Room Now, and thank you for watching, and we'll see you in a little bit. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines reporting for Room Now at the virtual ACR 2021. I found an interesting study by the group of Dr. Beth Wallace entitled Fibromyalgias and Glucocorticoid Persistence Among Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis, 
abstract number 120 and wanted to feature it in my report today. Fibromyalgianus refers to a cluster of somatic symptoms associated with increased sensitivity to painful stimuli. Their study looked into the longitudinal associations between fibromyalgianus and glucocorticoid persistence among RA patients. They used the fibromyalgia survey questionnaire to measure fibromyalgianus and defined glucocorticoid persistence as glucocorticoid use after a three-month follow-up period. A total of 97 patients were included. Results show that on follow-up, 64% of the patients had persistent glucocorticoid use and glucocorticoid persistence was more common in participants with high fibromyalgianus. In addition, participants with high levels of fibromyalgianus at baseline had higher odds of glucocorticoid persistence on follow-up. Although the study enrolled only a few participants, it provides insight on other types of pain that our patients with RA may have, like fibromyalgia, and how we might need to revise our approach into our management. Sometimes there might be a disconnect between our treatment expectations and that of our patients, or what they refer to as pain might not necessarily translate to our definition. The lack of objective markers for fibromyalgia adds to the challenge. As rheumatologists, we should also consider chronic pain syndromes that might overlap with inflammatory symptoms of our patients because this can also impact the type of treatment we give them, especially when it comes to glucocorticoid. Constantly reevaluating the need to adjust glucocorticoid dose should always be part of the follow-up examination or evaluation. It would be interesting to see more of these studies, um, th these studies result in the future involving a larger population or additional research on this area. Follow me on Twitter at Rumorampa and tune in to RoomNow.com for more coverage of the ACR Convergence 2021. Thank you.